1: In this chapter, Paul is continuing to address the substantial gap between who these people are and how they are behaving. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves, wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So obviously it's been reported to Paul, either by Chloe's people or by the three visitors we mentioned earlier, that there are a variety of ongoing lawsuits between various members of the church in Corinth. And this absolutely floors the Apostle Paul. How could you let this happen, Paul says, given all that I have told you about your identity and your future as God's people in Christ. This is one of those passages, by the way, that theologians point to in order to remind us that Christian ethics must always be informed by Christian eschatology. Now realize those are big words. Ethics means how we behave. Eschatology means what we believe about the future. So these theologians are saying that what we believe about the future is supposed to influence how we behave in the here and now. You can see that emphasis in verse 2. Apostle Paul says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Have you forgotten what's coming, Paul says? Brothers and sisters, you're going to sit with Jesus and judge the world. Now, to be clear, The Bible says that Christians themselves will be judged by Jesus. Paul says that, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, we're going to be judged according to what we have done in our bodies. Keep that in mind. But then also remember what Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 19.28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Closed quote. We see this sort of thing in the Old Testament as well. In Daniel 7, 21-22, it says, I beheld, and that horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and he gave judgment to the saints of the Most High, and the time came on, and the saints possessed the kingdom. Close quote. So in this passage, the prophet Daniel sees a day when the Ancient of Days will come and deliver judgment over to the saints and give to them a kingdom as their everlasting inheritance. Well, that is precisely the eschatological understanding that informs the ethical imperatives That Paul is delivering in this chapter. He is saying we're going to judge the world. He is saying we're going to inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, we ought to be competent to judge these silly disputes that arise from time to time within our own community. And more than that, we ought to be willing to let most of this stuff just go, given the glorious inheritance that lies in front of us. That's the idea. I love how Matthew Henry summarizes this principle. He says, speaking of Christians, they themselves are indeed to be judged, but they may first be acquitted and then advanced to the bench to approve and applaud the righteous judgment of Christ both on men and angels. Close quote. That is well and marvelously said. So, People who will one day serve as rulers and judges over all things, and people who will one day inherit all the riches of God in Christ, probably shouldn't be scrapping like rabid dogs in the streets in full view of the neighbors. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Grow up, boys and girls, and start behaving like who you are. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived ignorance issue. What's going on here, Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, interestingly, he appears to be quoting from, or at least alluding to, Deuteronomy 6.1. We've already been impressed in this letter by how often and how directly the Apostle Paul appeals to the Torah in setting things to right in this New Testament congregation. Here, he seems to be doing that again. He is alluding to Deuteronomy 6.1. Wherein Moses says to the people, And these are the commands, and the ordinances, and the judgments, as many as the Lord our God gave commandment to teach you to do so in the land on which ye enter to inherit it. Quote. Now, I've quoted that from a translation of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible of the early church. Paul uses the exact same Greek word here in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6 that was used by Moses in Deuteronomy 6.1. In both cases, the word is translated into English as inherit. It's the Greek word kleronomeo. Moses is using it in Deuteronomy to identify the sort of people who can live with God in his kingdom forever. And Paul is doing the exact same thing here in 1 Corinthians 6. And therefore, we're not surprised to see Paul giving a 10-rule summary of kingdom behavior, just like old Moses did back in the Old Testament. They're both saying the exact same thing. People who love God and submit to his rules and ordinances will live with God in his kingdom as his beloved children forever. And those who don't, those who won't, will be excluded. That is the consistent message of the Bible from cover to cover, Old Testament and New. The grace of God is given to us in the New Testament to break the power of sin and to help us live like Jesus. So it saves us from the punishment of sin and it saves us progressively from the power of sin so that we can live like Jesus, the ultimate obedient son. That's the gospel in all its glorious fullness. The grace of God is not given to confirm us in our sin and rebellion, regardless of what you may have heard from any so-called Christian teachers. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. The words, do not be deceived there, imply that someone was telling them that this wasn't true. Someone, some leader, some teacher, someone was telling them that God will accept you into his kingdom no matter how you choose to behave. But that's not quite right, Paul says. God, of course, will accept you as a child, no matter your past, no matter where you came from, no matter what you've done. After all, Paul says, such were some of you. But then he gives you grace. He gives you his spirit. And by his spirit, he helps you to change by one degree of glory to the next into the same image as Jesus Christ. This is the work of the spirit in us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we'll get to that later. That's the gospel, friends, from start to finish. So do not be deceived. If you won't give up your sin, if you won't agree with God's word and God's commandment with respect to your behavior, sexual and otherwise, you will be excluded, finally and eternally excluded. You'd have to throw away your whole Bible, my friend, Old Testament and new, to avoid that awesome reality. Now, because this passage might be the most disputed and disregarded passage in all the New Testament, it will be worth our time to go through this list in some detail. I'll use the New King James Version for this section, which I just cited above, only because the ESV accidentally obscures the Old Testament connection by giving us a list of what appears to be nine representative sins, as opposed to the ten that Paul actually does give in the original Greek. What the ESV does there is combine two separate sins in one. They take both halves of the homosexual act, which are listed separately in the Greek, and they simply refer to men who practice homosexuality. But but in the Greek, and in the NKJV, there are ten separate sins listed, and I don't think that is accidental. The first word, translated here as fornicators in the NKJV, is the Greek word pornos. And it literally means a prostitute chaser. So if you persist in having sex with prostitutes, Paul says, you will be excluded from the kingdom of God. Second word there is the word idolater. We probably know that one pretty well, and we'll be getting into that later in this letter. The third word used here is the Greek word moikos, and it refers to adulterers, people who have sex with someone else's spouse. The fourth word is the Greek word malakos which means effeminate one, which refers to the passive partner in homosexual sex. The fifth word is arsenicoitus, translated in the NKJV as sodomite. This refers to the active partner in homosexual intercourse. These are the two sins that the ESV combines into men who practice homosexuality, accidentally obscuring the fact that there are 10 representative sins in this list. The sixth word is translated as thieves, which I'm sure we all understand. The seventh word is covetous, which of course harkens back to the 10th commandment. This means to lust after things or people which do not properly belong to you. You can covet your neighbor's wife, or you can covet your neighbor's donkey. Today we would say you can covet your neighbor's car. Both are marked out here as sin. And this is a further reminder that sin is not just a matter of what we do it touches even to the matter of how we desire. Hear that. Even desires that we do not act upon can be fairly described as sin. True children of the kingdom are not simply self-controlled. They are not merely restraining their lustful and murderous instincts. No, they have been taught by the Holy Spirit and helped to feel and desire in alignment with the good, acceptable, and perfect will of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The eighth word is drunkards. Of course, it's not a sin in the Bible to drink, but it is a sin to be drunk. It is a sin for sons and daughters of the kingdom to surrender their moral judgment and to act like fools and animals in the street. It simply does not accord with your status and dignity as children of the living God. The ninth word used here is the Greek word loiteros and it refers to people who abuse, rail and revile. Again, A son or daughter of the king ought not to be found barking like a dog in the streets. The tenth word used here in this representative list is the word harpax. It means to extort or to exact ransom. It could apply to people who kidnap for money or simply to someone who uses their privilege to extort money out of the poor. Regardless, it is obviously completely out of character for sons and daughters of the kingdom. You may have done those things in the past, but you've been saved. You've been washed. You've been set apart. You bear the name of Jesus Christ, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, it is time now to act like who you are. In verses 12 to 13, it appears that Paul is commenting on a variety of sayings that were current among the Corinthian Christians. He He quotes the saying, and then he pushes back. And of course, contemporary pastors do this as well. I might say, just do it, quoting the Nike slogan. But then I might qualify that and say, just do it, yes. But also, let's think carefully about what it is that we do. Or I might say, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Well, perhaps. But let's also remember that God cares about our holiness in addition to our happiness. Do you see? That's what Paul is doing here. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, And will also raise us up by his power. Now, interestingly, scholars debate here as to the origin of these sayings. Many, maybe most, say that the sayings actually came out of the culture. They were popular cultural slogans. But others say that they may have been distortions of things that the Apostle Paul actually said himself when he was present with them. Go back and look at the list. That's not an absolutely ridiculous suggestion. One can easily imagine a person half listening to a sermon of the Apostle Paul's and and then summarizing it in the car on the way home or, or on the donkey on the way home. I think what Paul was saying, dear, is that because we're saved by grace, it really doesn't matter now how we behave. All things are lawful for us in Christ. You could get there, and it's clear that some people did get there. The Apostle Peter said that some of his people got there. He wrote to his people in Second Peter chapter 3, and he talked about our dear brother Paul, who wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, closed quote. So Peter says, I don't want you hanging around with those people who distort the Apostle Paul's teaching to suggest that we can receive the grace of God in Christ and then go on living however we please. That is poison. And I don't want you to have anything to do with that. So Paul is pushing back here. Against these slogans, wherever they came from. He says that the body matters. Christianity is not just a matter of the soul, it is also about what we do with our bodies. To be human is to be a soul and a body joined. The incarnation reminds us of how absolutely indispensable this understanding of our humanity is. You are an embodied soul, and therefore, It really matters what you do with your body, particularly if you are joined to Christ. He hits that pretty hard in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So again, Paul says, is this ignorance or rebellion? Do you not know this? Here, he seems to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you don't know this. Maybe you haven't really thought this through. Leon Morris is here. The Corinthians had not thought through the implications of their sexual laxity. Anyone who unites with a prostitute by that act becomes one with her. Casual sex is anything but casual. It is an act of sacrilege. Temples like our bodies are not meant for profanations like this, closed quote. So maybe that's it. Maybe they hadn't thought this through. But now they know. And so they will be held accountable for what they know. And Paul makes that very clear. And let's notice that too. Paul makes that very clear. He didn't pull any punches. He was never rude or unkind, but he was firm and he was clear. So many Christians today refuse to be either. And, and they say that they agree with those of us who still believe in the Bible, but they chastise those of us who continue to teach on these things because they say it isn't loving. One thing I've learned over the years is that there is no right way of saying something that a person is bound and determined not to hear. If you don't want to hear what the Bible says about morality in general, and human sexuality in particular, then you will never hear it said in a tone that you find acceptable. It will always feel oppressive. It will always feel judgmental. And that cannot be avoided. And for most of church history, we would have said that should not be avoided. The church father, John Chrysostom, writing in the fourth century, says here, Paul seeks to shame the fornicator by saying that if he really belongs to Christ, he ought to know better than to indulge in such demeaning behavior. He speaks in graphic terms about the prostitute in order to startle his hearers and fill them with alarm, closed quote. The Apostle Paul had an eternal perspective. He would rather hurt someone now and see them saved later than coddle them now and condemn them later. Again, he was never unkind, but he was also never unclear. He told the truth. He confronted their behavior. He challenged their immaturity, he reminded them of their essential dignity, and he called them to live a wholehearted, whole life, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, just like any good father or any good pastor would.
0: Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word.